0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit You. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia. The Ideal Community for Emerging Nonprofit Leaders, I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia and lessons learned from Lawndale. You can also leave comments on the blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit utopia page. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In fact, I take that back. We're having technical difficulties. We're not going to be posting in the chat room today. So I do apologize for that. If you have any specific questions, you can email me at ValerieFLeonard.com at nonprofitutopia.com, and for obvious reasons, I won't be able to respond to your email while I'm on the podcast, but definitely I will make every point of uh, responding to any questions that you have. And we will be taking questions by phone at about the 30-minute mark, and that number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. And we encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section on the episode page. And just wanted to give you a little bit of background behind today's episode. Um, just as you know, we're not going to have a guest. I am your surprise guest. And I don't normally do these shows by myself, but uh, I thought it was really important to share some information about TIFF. You know, from time to time, I get questions about TIFF. In fact, before I started, um, nonprofit utopia, I was very, very engaged in the North Lawndale community, and for those of you who are not from Chicago, North Lawndale is a community on Chicago's west side. I was born and raised there. So as co-founder of the Lawndale Alliance, I worked very, very closely with my neighbors to advocate for tax increment financing, and when we talk about tax increment financing, um, I'm talking about the policies for um, for TIFs and policies that would make the program more transparent and be a better benefit to local residents, you know, because we, we found that in many instances uh, the justification for passing legislation to start a new TIF is the fact that it's going to bring jobs to North Lawndale or to the so-called blighted community. But in many instances, it's very difficult to document whether or not jobs have been brought to the community that will actually benefit residents. So we engaged in a lot of advocacy to try to bring about more transparency, try to make sure that those TIFs work for the community residents just as well as they do for developers. And one of our greatest victories was around uh, the time that the last TIF was created in North Lawndale. That was the Ogden-Pulaski TIF, and that was back around 2007. And we uh, got to the point, and we'll talk more about that, but one of our greatest victories is making sure that we were able to remove more than 300 properties um, from from the displaced list. So that really impacted about 1,200 residents, and uh, that was totally totally unheard of at the time. And we are very very proud to have achieved that feat. So I'm going to talk more about that using a case study and sharing some of the lessons that we've learned over the years. And we'll talk about what to do and what not to do in order to create win-win situations for all parties involved. And I encourage you uh, at the half-hour mark to call us, and that number is 347-884-8121. And I I would like for you to share some of your experiences with TIFFs. If you worked along with us in Bondo, we'd love to hear from you. If at any point you gave us advice, we'd love to hear from you. If at any point we've shared advice with you, we'd love to hear from you. We really, really want to make this interactive as possible and not just hear me um, reminiscing, okay? And I thought before we go into the case study, that we'll just give an overview of what a TIF is so, you know, we can all enjoy the podcast and really understand what this is all about. So TIF stands for Tax Increment Financing, and it's a district, you know, within the city that uh, they have studied, you know, they looked at it, and they said, you know, we need to jumpstart this community, right? Um, So so they look at it within the lens of several criteria that we'll get into in just a moment, but after they do the study, they then um, declare that it's blighted and say that, but for the TIF, you know, there would be no, you know, there would be no investment. And, you know, that's arguable as to whether or not that's true from time to time, but, but that is really, you know, what a TIFF is. It's basically meant to jumpstart the economic development within a, a geographic area. And the funds come from the local taxpayers to um, spur development in that community. So under state law, and the state law is basically derived from national law um, created by um, the federal government, and usually under the the HUD conservation area. So under Illinois state law and probably every other state in the United States, areas proposed for TIP designation have to have a number of qualities, um, blighting factors in order to be eligible. Um, these are things like building code violations. They must be old, obsolete. There's an area of lack of community planning, lack of physical maintenance, um, excessive land coverage, um, the properties are dilapidated, and all that good stuff. And the source for this um, definition, as well as these criteria, are the Chicago website. And the way TIFs work is you know upon that designation you know once the, the area is approved then you <clears throat> excuse me, you create a base that they're valued as of the day that the tif is created and from that day forward any property taxes that it was collecting as of that day go to the general fund but any taxes over and beyond that base amount Uh, will stay in the TIF. So that could be funds from property tax increases. It could be funds from taxes of properties that are, you know, that were built onto vacant land. So any of that increment stays in the community and it will go into uh, creating economic development opportunities. Now, the one drawback for TIFs, well, there's one and one drawback, um, and and I'm not an anti-TIF person. Let's be clear, but I, I just want to be clear that there's more than than one drawback. Over time, you know, since the TIFs last for 23 years, over time, and it has happened, uh, property tax You know, people who live within the area, they own property in the area, they could conceivably generate more TIF increment than goes into the general fund over time, you know, because of inflation, because of development, and all that good stuff. And then as a result of that, there's less money over time to go into city services, and they could eventually force, you know, effectively. Uh, tax increases you know because that money that could go to schools that could go to other taxing bodies like our parks and our city colleges and our forest reserves and all that good stuff are tied up in this tiff so there's pros and cons about whether or not to use the tiffs and um, and my job here is not necessarily to go yay or nay even though i do support tiffs but My problem with TIFs as they have been used in Chicago is they have not been necessarily as beneficial to the local communities where they were created. There is lots of room for improvement in terms of making the TIFs work more effectively for the the local residents. Okay, and at this point I'm going to stop and let folks know that we're here. You're listening to Nonprofit Utopia and we're talking about lessons learned from Lawndale in Chicago. We're talking about TIFs and we're going to be using a case study to show um, how we in North Lawndale advocated for more transparency and for TIFs to be um, used in such a way that they benefit local businesses. Okay. And before we get into the case study, I just want to give you an overview of some of the programs Um, in Chicago. We have have the Neighborhood Improvement Program, and that is for um, local residents um, to improve their their housing. We have the TIF Works, and that is a job workforce development program for community or well, for businesses in the area who want to do hiring from the community. If they're doing a TIF funded project, then they may become eligible for TIF Works. That doesn't um, exist in every TIF district, but you know that is one of the programs that we have. We also have the Small Business Improvement Fund and that is for businesses in the area to improve the facades of their buildings. And we have streamlined TIFs, which is basically a a low documentation TIF product. And then we have the Riverfront Improvement Fund, and that's exactly what it says. And we have the Laboratory Facilities Fund. So, um, So the Riverfront Improvement Fund to improve properties along the riverfront, and then Laboratory Facilities Fund for... Laboratories, okay. I think that's um, pretty straightforward. And so, without further ado, I just want to give you a case study that um, we have here in North Lauderdale. So this is dealing with the ogden Pulaski TIF, and this TIF has since um, since 2007. Um, it it's uh, it was created in 2007 but it has been folded up into the Midwest TIF. At the time of our advocacy, there were seven TIFs that had some landmass in North Lawndale, and this was one of them. Um, this was the last one, but all of those TIFs, except one, if I read the city's map correctly, have been merged into one super TIFF. And you know, as it stood when we did this um advocacy, almost every um le- piece of landmass in the uh Lawndale area was covered by a TIFF. You know, very few, very small pockets that weren't. But um those TIFFs have all been merged except for for one into the Midwest TIF. So I, I just wanna um, give you some setting there. We were uh, the Lawndale Alliance, and the Lawndale Alliance was an ad hoc group. Uh, we never formally incorporated, but it was an ad hoc group of residents as well as other stakeholders. Some were business owners, some belonged to black clubs, some belonged to churches, um, some belonged to other groups, but, you know, it was a very, I think, diverse group of stakeholders across um, the North Lawndale community. And again, North Lawndale is situated on the west side of Chicago, and um, it's a low-income community, um, mostly African American, although that's Changing and um, you know we're you know increasingly you know increasingly there are more uh, Latinos in the community and increasingly more white, even though it's still predominantly African American. I think it's still over ninety percent African American, but even that is lower
1: than it was um, ten years ago.
0: So the Ivan Pulaski TIF. Um, there, you know, for those of you who are not in Chicago, this is meaningless to you. For those of you who are from Chicago, this may have some meaning. If you're from the south side, it may not have that much meaning, but west-siders will definitely know what I'm talking about. Um, we are along the Eisenhower Expressway. The southern border is roughly Cermac, and at this time, the eastern Border was roughly Albany, and you know, which is right across from Douglas Park, and to the north was Taylor Street in some areas, and then you know, roughly um, bounding about Roosevelt. So it was roughly, um, yeah, and then it went as far west as city limits, and the sponsors were the City of Chicago, LISC, Staines Family Foundation, and Lawndale Christian Development Corporation. And this was created, actually, they started in 2007, and it was actually approved in 2008. And, again, this has since been folded into the Midwest TIF. And some of the goals were, you know, they wanted a community that was stable economically and racially diverse, secure and beautiful. Um, they wanted a comprehensive housing program that serves homeowners and renters of all income groups. They wanted a revitalized commercial base highlighted by Ogden Avenue as the main corridor. And for those of you who are not from Chicago, you might be familiar with Route 66. Well, Route 66 starts or ends depending on how you when they count it in Chicago, and it goes all the way west to California. So in Chicago, it's Ogden Avenue. And we said that we wanted uh, preservation and enhancement of historic or architecturally significant buildings in the project area. And another goal was new investment and development opportunities. So when we look at, you know, some of the major highlights of the TIFs, Um, the redevelopment plan. It was calling for up to 20,000 square feet of commercial development along Ogden Avenue, which was the main thoroughfare, Pulaski Avenue, and 16th Street, and potential rezoning of the area in the vicinity of Kedsey Avenue and Sonak Road from residential to commercial and light manufacturing. And this is an area of total concern. Uh, Yeah, that caused the most concern because this was the area where a lot of people could potentially be displaced. And up to 300 units of new housing, and that would include a mixture of market rate and affordable housing. And affordable housing means different things to different people, but in a community like North Lawndale, which is very low income, I believe at this time on average, the average household was about $18,000 a year in income, so that's very low income. So even the the residents there could not afford affordable housing because affordable housing is usually affordable to people who are making about 80% of the national average income. Um, they were also at that time looking for new job opportunities for local residents, and this included welfare-to-work programs and jobs for ex-offenders. So we took it upon ourselves. We, at the Bondell Alliance, we took a copy. We made about 50 copies of the um, redevelopment plan, and we studied it, and we analyzed the issues you know, from our various perspectives. If we were residents, we looked at it from a resident's perspective. If we were business owners, then we looked at it from a business owner's perspective. Basically just trying to understand, you know, if we're paying for this, you know, what's in it for us? So some of the issues that we um, identified after reading this 358-page document and literally, you know, going through it as a group is, the will of local property owners, who collectively would have had to pay a quarter of a billion dollars, so we're looking at 250 million dollars in property taxes for the life of that TIF, seemed to be ignored over a handful of influential foundations and tax-exempt organizations. You know that those were the drivers of this, and this uh, redevelopment plan was not created with input from rank-and-file citizens, um, but, you know, rather people who represented the community through nonprofit organizations and through our elected officials. Another issue that we had was up to 1,200 people could be potentially displaced as a result of the implementation of that TIFS plan. So we're very concerned about that. And at the same time, there were about 635 residential units you know, that could be impacted by building code violations. So on top of that 1,200, we could be um, displaced otherwise, we had these building code violations. And then there were a substantial number of errors in the acquisition plan, so every tip as an acquisition plan. So um, just a backup, um, every TIF, you know, takes into account all of the properties in that area. And, you know, that includes vacant properties as well as occupied properties. And when you certify a TIF, you have to, you know, the developer and the consultant have to create a list of properties that could be potentially displaced um, through some means either through acquisition, so they had to include acquisition plans uh, as well as homes that could be displaced by the TIF, right? Uh, okay, so in this case, the displacement could potentially occur as a result of rezoning and not necessarily demolition, except for in those properties that were deemed um, blighted. And another issue we had was the plan called for racial and economic diversity but didn't articulate how this would be achieved. Now, at the time, the community was 93% African American and a median income of $18,342. The only way you could make that diverse is if you, I guess, fill in spaces, and, you know, there were a number of vacant properties, well over 1,700 in this particular area. So 17, So you would definitely need to build around the existing properties and bring in other people. That's the only way you're going to create diversity. So needless to say, that made people nervous, and the plan was not developed with Broad based community input. Again, you know, you had people, you had nonprofits at the table who, you know, served the community, but there were very few, if any, um, local residents who actually had any input into the development of this plan before it was presented to the community. And there was no indication that the city department of planning and development was willing to change the proposed redevelopment plan and budget to take into account suggestions. Okay. Suggestions from the community. And by and large, over time, they did not, they never changed this plan, even though, you know, there was uh, considerable concern. They did, however, uh, make sure that, you know, through our advocacy, they took out those properties that were included in error in the acquisition plan. You know, we were very concerned that a number of those properties were listed in error in the acquisition plan and the plan uh, for housing to be displaced. We were also concerned with the fact that they were looking to acquire about 17. Hundred properties, and the development plan that they were willing to disclose only called for the building, you know, construction of about 1,200 uh, square feet of commercial space and 300 units of housing and then some open space. Now, you you didn't need 1,700 properties. We didn't have to acquire all of that to do what they proposed to do. So we thought that it was very excessive, and ultimately the city agreed with us, and they uh, reduced the number of properties to be acquired significantly. They, they reduced the number of properties to be acquired from 1,700 down to about 635, you know, which is, you know, we think, that was reasonable if you only plan to build 300 houses and have some open space. Um, they also reduced the number of properties that could be potentially displaced uh, from from about 360 some odd, I think, about
1: 363 units to 13. So
0: we save the properties or save about 1,200 people from being displaced from their homes. So how did we do that? Um, Some of the strategies that we used, uh, we educated ourselves on the process by hosting experts from other parts of the city. First of all, this included other uh, people from communities like Englewood who had gone through it, Um, a friend of ours, John Paul Jones, He had worked with the, um, I guess, the capital budget group. He and um, Jackie, Jackie Levy, one of my mentors, as well as Joanne Bradley, another one of my mentors, all of them had worked with the capital budget group either as board members or as executive directors. So we worked with people who really knew that process inside and out. We read articles. We uh, became familiar with the process for, um, for approving the TIFs. We um, became familiar through um, the tutelage of John and Jackie and Joanne uh, with all the, the different documents the city might print on TIFs. And we learned as much as we could, and we never, we'll never be remiss if we didn't include journalist Ben Jolofsky. Um Ben Jalofsky at that time was probably one of the few people, few journalists that had the nerve to actually talk about some of the downsides for TIFS. You know, at that time, you know, it just was not politically expedient to say anything negative about TIF. And you know, because TIFS was the tool of choice for our then mayor Daley. Again, we taught ourselves um, what the issues were by reading that 385-page redevelopment agreement. We held town hall meetings. We met with our elected officials. We wrote position papers analyzing the issues, impact, and solutions, and we shared that in our network. We attended every public meeting held by various agencies along the way and we provided testimony. Again, we were not against the TIF, but we had serious concerns as to the way it was implemented, um, and we shared those concerns. Um, We also had press conferences. We went on cable television. We were guests on radio shows. We issued press releases. We wrote blog posts. We found allies from around the city and even beyond the city. Uh, We worked with the Institute for Justice, who was very, very keen on making sure that local residents around the country, you know, are not taken advantage of through through excessive use of eminent domain. And, you know, they helped us tremendously. And then, again, we, We made sure that we always provided public testimony at the meetings. So another thing that we did was we provided accountability for the TIF. You know, we got to a point where we looked at every TIF in North Laundale. We looked at all the money that was coming in, all the money that was going out, compared the budgets. We compared the goals and objectives to what the actual expenses were and what the actual projects were. But for this particular project, this was the Midwest TIF. Remember, we had six TIFs in North Lawndale. Um, So for this particular project, it was a $100 million deal, and we we like the fact that there was job training, about 2.5 million dollars allocated to job training, but most of that was for the intent of ex-offenders. We were looking at our workforce and we noted that a number of people were in manufacturing, but they had they were working in those mature industries. And we thought it would be helpful if that money could also be allowed to, you know, for people, for residents in the community who are working, let them retool. Another issue that we had was there was more money set aside for daycare services, about six million dollars in this budget for daycare, and that that was more than any money for job training. And then we were also concerned with relocation expenses that told us immediately that there could be some imminent domain where people could potentially lose their houses so those were things that were of most concern to us so again we we followed the process we looked at all the projects that were proposed and Again, we did enough advocacy over it must have been about a nine month period. We saw the whole process through from beginning to end. We went to every meeting, every public meeting that was held on it. We sent somebody there to represent the interests of the community so that was um Critical, you know, to stay engaged, you know, because a lot of these meetings are very time-consuming, or they're not. You don't have very long notice, so you have to be very, very vigilant. So I just wanted to share these 13 tips um, that we uh, learned, you know, just through the process. So the first lesson that I would share is know the issues. You want to know, first of all, what factors led to the creation of the TIFF. You know, so when we say what factors, we're looking at the political factors as well as the physical factors of the community. You want to know the current events in the community and how the proposed plan actually addresses the development issues. You know, because Many of these tips are not driven by the community itself. You know, they're driven by developers. And, you know, it's a a development tool and not necessarily a community tool, so to speak. And if used wisely, the community can truly, truly benefit from a tip. So you want to ask questions like how does the manner in which the plan addresses the issues impact the community As a whole, you know, me as a business owner, me as an individual, me as someone who has children in school, you know, how much money is going to be diverted from our schools for 23 years? How much money is going to be diverted from our parks for 23 years? That kind of stuff. What do the taxpayers have to lose? Are the benefits greater than the cost? You know, if the benefit's to the community are greater than the cost to developing the TIF, by all means, develop the TIF and you know, support it. What do the taxpayers have to lose? What's the proposed budget for the redevelopment plan? In this case, the original budget was $100 million. And how were the local taxpayers involved in the creation of the plan? So in this case, the original plan was developed by um, groups that were led by nonprofits for the most part. And the community was made aware after the draft plan was done and there was public meetings. So at at that point, that's when we were aware of the plan and could give input. And another thing you want to know, what are the deficiencies in the plan? You know, Every plan, you know, as when I read that plan to you, I'm sure you listened to it, and on the surface it sounds like a wonderful thing, and it really is a wonderful plan. It's, let's be very, very clear. It's a great plan. Our concerns is great could have been greater. Um, the uh, greater would have been more involvement of the local community. Great would have been more a guarantee that um, more jobs could be created. For local residents, great was then making sure that uh, there was just as much concern for people who needed to retool their skills, who were actually paying taxes, as there were for uh, providing employment for ex offenders. You know, equity was, was critical. So those kinds of things went into work into our heads, you know, as we read the plans, as we uh, created recommendations for making it work better for us. So I'm going to stop there to see if there are any questions or comments. Um, There are a few more tips that I wanted to share, but I see that we have a couple callers. I just wanted to see if the callers had any comments. Um, Caller, your phone number is seven seven three eight four six eight seven nine seven. I'm going to make your mic live. If you have any questions or comments, um, please share share them with us, please.
2: The question, the only question okay. that I would have, can you hear me now? Hello.
0: Okay, I can hear you. Is is this Attorney Foreman? Your voice sounds familiar.
2: Yes, it is. It certainly is. You can recognize my voice after a year. That's wild. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, how wonderful. I, I, um, I think this is a very, very useful and very excellent uh, uh, thing, and particularly now that we're aggressively involved in the potential for some real development going down on the south side and on the west sides, and I think that. Uh, this is an extremely important uh, exercise, and one that, that, that I'm welcoming, particularly the methodology that you used in terms of, of comparing with what other communities have experienced, and especially Inglewood. So mm-hmm. the, the question that occurs to me is that there have been many, many, many more developments that have gone down since. Uh, your your involvement and your community involvement was obviously very excellent. Um, what mm-hmm. were the methods that you used to get and involve and keep your organizing forces together? Because it was obviously some very disparate people and and, and entities. <laughs> uh, did you have some some things that you utilized to make sure that? Everyone stayed cohesive and in a good in um, a good place together.
0: Yes, 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 and I would say that first of all, it's the grace of God because you're right. We had some very disparate people, um, some very unlikely people working together. We had senior citizens, we had ex offenders, we had people who have been left to the fringes of these mm-hmm. um, processes um, historically. We had business people, we had other rank-and-file property owners, as well as renters, and mm-hmm. then some young people. But I would say the majority of the people at the time were older um, property owners who had been there for years and had a vested interest in, you know, making sure that they weren't mm. displaced. And displaced. it was so very, mm-hmm, and it was difficult, you know, in answer to your question, it was difficult to keep that group of people together for as long as we did. And we were able to do it. One, one of the main ways we kept people involved was having meetings. we We met like twice a month. Uh, we uh-huh. met as often as necessary. Um, that that was one way to do it. But uh-huh. I think the smartest move we made was investing the time in making copies of the redevelopment plan up front. And we went through it with people who were the least likely to go over this thing, you know, people you at least expect yeah. to go over such a long legal document, rank and file Mm -hmm. community members, senior citizens, people who have been disenfranchised in one way or another. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And once people could see the impact of that plan, you know, see the implications of the plan from their perspective, you know, we had business owners, They, they wanted to understand the plan from their point of view. We had uh-huh. people who lived in the community, and we asked them to look at it from their perspective. So once people could understand how this impacted them personally, and how yeah. this it became a household word,
1: it uh-huh.
0: it was a lot easier. But we also you know, um, communicated with people regularly.
1: Um, if yeah. we weren 't on can t v then we were
0: doing op eds in the local press if we uh, weren 't on can t v or the press, then we were on the Garfield major show, you know, and a lot of people from Lawndale listened to that show, and we were constantly mm-hmm. keeping people up to date. You know this is happening that 's happening, and you know just letting people vent. You know, because um, it got to a point where not everybody had the same interest. You know, anytime you get that larger group of people, we we had a core group of about 50 people. That was our core. But when we had um, press conferences and when we went downtown to have meetings, you know, we had, we filled City Hall, um, the the City Council chambers. We, educated people on the issue and and gave them technical assistance. We didn't tell them what to say, but we gave uh-huh. them technical assistance in preparing their um, testimony so they could say with their own voices, you know, how this was impacting them and what they wanted to see different. Not one person said that they didn't want the TIF, but everyone said uh-huh. that they wanted some sort of improvement, you know, so that people in the community could in fact benefit and uh, I don't know, like like I mentioned in the flyer, it was unprecedented uh, we had we raised such a ruckus, and we shared the errors in the plans um, such and and we had such compelling testimony that we forced the city to revise that plan. I believe three times
2: um, mm-hmm. before
0: it was actually, okay. it, that was unheard of at the time. You know, usually
1: mm-hmm.
0: when the city has their mind to do a TIF, take it or leave it, but it was because we did our homework. it was because we read the documents, because we knew where he, the bodies were buried, so to speak. And I had to thank people like John Paul Jones from England. Uh-huh.
2: I have to thank
0: Jackie Yeah, mm-hmm. Jackie Levy from yeah. the Capital Budget Group, Joanne Bradley, mm-hmm. Ben Jarovsky. I mean they just literally cut our heads open and people were just thirsty for the knowledge and and once people, you know, realized what was at stake, you know, particularly the displacement that could have occurred on SERMAC Uh, between Kedzie and Central Park, I believe, or a little bit west of Central Park, and Mm -hmm. on Kedzie from Suddenback up to Ogden. Mm -hmm. And the development was going to start from the southern end and not the northern end, and about Mm -hmm.
1: 80%
0: of that TIF was in North Um, Uh Londell, and 20% was in South Londell. But they were going to start in South Lawndale. And and it was tricky, too, because, you know, as people in Chicago know, South Lawndale is primarily Latino, and North Lawndale is primarily black. And Mm -hmm. the way the TIF was drawn, the majority of the TIF was in the the black area, but the Mm -hmm. development was going to start in the Latino area. And the Latino community, you know, uh, that was impacted, they, they're ready to develop, right? The, the area, mm-hmm. Little Village, is second only to Michigan Avenue in terms of sales receipts.
1: And mm-hmm. businesses
0: are popping up at any point. But then compare that to North Lawndale, you know,
1: mm-hmm. there's a
0: dearth of businesses and um, we need to do considerable, considerable capacity building so that people can take advantage of opportunity. So, you know, what assurances did we have that there was going to be opportunity for people, you know, in the whole TIF, in spite of the fact that people at that point didn't have the capacity to, to implement You know, and take advantage of some opportunities. So that was a very delicate um, situation. And, you know, people accused us of being racist. And, you know, and that's not true at all. But, Mm -hmm. you know,
2: we were concerned about that. we are describing two very different situations, very different constituents. Mm hmm
0: so right, it sounded right, as right.
2: it sounds as if that the articulation of that over and over and over and very clearly articulating it in media was a very important piece so that you had the the, the journalism uh, I I've seen some of Javorski's writing he's very clear in the reader you must have had some very excellent uh people that were that were preparing those those clear Um, Media and and communication Pieces that could then be Reinforcing What you were saying and making it clear In plain English To not only your core But to others As well
0: That's exactly right And
2: then
0: Yeah mm -hmm. Yeah yeah, Ben Jorofsky was critical You know almost every week He had something new in the reader right. that we could uh-huh. use in our arsenal, <laughs> you know, it was like, well, you know, uh-huh. he was quote unquote the Bible, and we would find ourselves quoting him. We didn't always agree, you know, because Ben doesn't like Tiff at all. I,
1: Joanne <laughs> and
0: I, you know, we were <laughs> we were the, the people leading the charge. Um, uh-huh. We liked Tiff, but we didn't like the. The way they were being abused, and how um, the community could have benefited more. So, and, so how, did, had, you, how uh,
2: did you? How did you? The idea of what it was that you all decided that you when when you did find out some of these excesses, like the seventeen, the the overreach in terms of acquisition of property, and you mm-hmm. found that <laughs> that you cut it down. How did you? Determined what kinds of remedies that you wanted to see, so that it could so that it could uh, work with some of the other more difficult uh, objectives, such as those objectives having to do with jobs for a constituency that was quite different from uh, from, mm-hmm. from the constituents in South Lawndale. How did you? How yeah. did you? Forge this this new kind of uh, of of uh, use of the budget, um, and and what uh, exactly was that difference?
0: Okay, now they did not change the budget at all. the The budget stayed the same. The budget line items stayed the same, in spite of our objections. Um, mm-hmm. What did change is the property that could have been acquired. You know, a handful of people wanted to land bank. You, you know, uh-huh. North Lawndale is just ripe with vacant property. So this property would have been acquired just to hold on to. Now, ostensibly, it said they said they were protecting the community from unscrupulous developers.
1: Uh-huh. But...
0: Um, you know, we didn't know that. The argument that we raised, we actually had to go to the the law department. You know, mm-hmm. we we told them why. You know, why in the world? or well, asked them, why in the world do they need to acquire seventeen hundred properties to build three hundred houses in twelve hundred square feet, which is really mm-hmm. the equivalent of one Jewel and Osco store. I used to do development okay. control in Isco. So I,
1: I knew uh-huh.
0: where footage is for those stores. I'm like, it doesn't take all that. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: the, the law department, you know, they read our letter. They never responded to me directly, but the next thing we knew was that land to be acquired was down to about 635 properties and the number of people who could be potentially displaced was down to thirteen units, that, so we went from mm. about twelve hundred people who could potentially lose their houses to, down to about fifty-two, and and that was huge. You know, I I think we could Ew. live with that. Um, and it and the way they were going to have their houses displaced is those houses, some of them were considered dilapidated. We mm-hmm. went to every property. We inspected every property that was considered dilapidated. And we took pictures Mm -hmm. of them. And we the pictures showed that those houses in many instances were recently uh, rehab rehabbed. So those houses got taken off the list. Yeah. One lady No I mean the
2: things describing sound like real bad faith. I mean that they're you know, something that ends up reducing the acquisitions by over half and and shows that the, you know that the descriptions of the property which would have justified them coming down or being classified as in in certain kinds of ways wasn't true that's i mean that that sounds like some real bad faith I'm, I'm i mean i don't know whether that that's something from a negotiating mm-hmm. point of view you use that mm-hmm. uh as a as a tool to to get to some other uh, goal but it's but the goal right. that I heard you all that I, that I heard you articulating was not only to protect. Uh, uh, that was a great goal that you that you met was protect uh, a great greater number of people from from being displaced and from losing their their property.
1: Mm-hmm. But right, it right. sounded
2: if I, I didn't really quite get what the the potential was for the job creation piece because you said that they that that the the, the plan was to employ a great many uh, ex-offenders, uh, the returning citizens, mm-hmm. um, rather than to also employ uh, other other people who may be categorized in other ways but who also represented a, a fairly large percentage of unemployed or underemployed mm-hmm. people. And you're right. saying you never right. were able to get that goal, to, to have them re- Redevelop that is that because of what the way minorities was were, was was uh, defined at the time or or the way um, I mean what what was the reasoning that you could not get the, okay. the that goal met? Right. Well,
0: okay, so I want to make it clear the the stated budget never changed the line items never changed in practice. Okay. Um, I'm not. Quite sure. I, I don't believe that they stuck strictly to the ex-offender goal, you know, because there were other employers in the area. And as a practical matter, when you implement the TIF, you know, when the TIFs become live, if you don't have a project that's ready to go, um, mm-hmm. then you, you're not going to be able to dip into that money. So the, the first eligible employer who can take advantage of the TIF work, you know, from what I gather, you know, those are the people who actually got it. But I still don't think our advocacy was in vain because, you know, one, you know, we stayed engaged even beyond the creation of the uh-huh. plan. So the, the advocacy took up. We were doing this for about eight years, and we started advocating for all the TIFs in North Florida, mm. You know, we That's did a really website right. that mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. We did a website that um, analyzed every tip, the the budgets, the land mass, um the contracts, you know, how much money was in it, how much money was expected to be spent. We uh assessed whether or not it met its goals and objectives. You know, so our biggest weapon so to speak was transparency and I do see uh, I do see another call So, attorney foreman um, I'm, I'm going to see a caller from three one two four one four five zero two one has a comment and we're running on we're running short of time we got four minutes in our regular oh. time I don't I don't know if you. I don't know if you have time to listen. I, you know, I'm willing to go over time for about 20 minutes. I, I should be done in 20 minutes. I just minutes.
2: have one other question, but I want you to go to that other caller because mm-hmm. I don't want to hog this this time. And, and but I have one other oh, question. Okay. So go on and, and take the other caller, and then we can we can, maybe we can talk further.
0: Okay. Okay, call her at three one two four one four five zero two one. Did you have a comment or a question?
3: Hello there, this is Leslie Page Piper. Uh very much, How are you? Good in you, good in you. Uh, very much impressed with your process. I think that um your takeaways could would be a very valuable Formatting into guidelines and a roadmap to be issued, uh, where communities across the, the city can utilize that to evaluate during the process of, of uh, being tip development for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just well, wanted thank to, you. to say that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I just want to say that too. And it, I guess, because of the, the timing at the time that um, um, you're going through the the tip process, uh, those particular businesses over there that are like manufacturing. Uh, it's unfortunate that there were not other entities that would have wanted to assist them with um, being, becoming more highly technolized and getting into advanced manufacturing and therefore opening up the um, the workforce possibilities for those beyond those who were ex offenders because you know becoming highly mm-hmm. technolized now uh, is such a a push across the city from various entities that are doing that, you know, M-Hub and uh, various manufacturing mm-hmm. indices in and that would have you, that I don't think they really existed in the format that they are now, but had they been uh, active and ongoing then, it would have been very helpful. because I'm sure they would have wanted to get in, in there and assist with that and find other resources to assist with um, uh, actually working, working to assist those businesses. To develop their apparatuses and and training high tech training to be on the assembly lines, which is the case now, and mm-hmm. which is there's a dartha Darth of people that want to go into that as it stands now, really for some time as you might know they were getting people from um, uh, Eastern European countries and other places to come in and work, and now there's a push by the state to uh, really encourage people to come in for training that would be low cost and no cost, and that. And, and certainly that could have been a,
1: mm-hmm. an
3: early uh, project uh, that could have uh, set the tone for in North Lawndale had there been uh, high-tech initiatives and advanced manufacturing initiatives for those businesses there. But overall, like I said, I'm very impressed, and I think it will be very helpful, too, to develop into uh, the guideline for community organizations and other uh, community-based uh, entities and being involved in this. So it did work. really.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you, ladies, both. What I'm going to do is I'm going to um, do more station identification, go through these tips, and if we don't get any other callers, I can come back, if that's okay. Okay. Fine. Absolutely okay. great. All righty. So I just want to remind everybody that you're listening to Nonprofit Utopia, and we don't have a guest today. You, you guys are stuck with me. We're talking about lessons learned, from Lawndale on the west side of Chicago. So we're looking at TIFFs. And before we get back into our discussion, I just want to let you know a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We are the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. We have created a safe environment in which our members can innovate, speak candidly about issues and concerns they face on a daily basis, and they can share resources and ideas, Visit NonprofitUtopia.com, and you can also visit our community at NonprofitUtopia.mn.co. And our mission is to provide ongoing professional development and networking opportunities in which experienced nonprofit professionals can share expertise with the next generation of ethical leaders, and the overarching goal of the community is to give our members the tools they need to develop strong organizations that will make a lasting impact, and our vision is to strengthen the global nonprofit sector by providing training and development opportunities for fifty thousand nonprofit leaders throughout the world by twenty thirty three. And Leslie is a member. I thank her so much for all of her support. And uh, My before pleasure. I go back into, thank you. And before I go into questions, I, I just want to give the other, <laughs> the other 12 tips. I, I'm sorry, I could be verbose in my description, so I'm going to have to speak a little bit more quickly now. So the second tip is to make sure you know the approval process as well as the rules of engagement. So in Chicago, and this is back in 2007, 2008, I don't know if the process is any different, but this is what the process was at the time. The first thing that would happen is there would be a public community meeting that would let the public know what the proposed redevelopment plan is for a proposed boundary of a um, TIF area. And then after that, they introduce it to the community development commission, and usually that process, you know, they have a public hearing, and usually there is a uh, rubber stamp approval. When we went there, um, there was a rubber stamp approval, but what was unusual is you had two or three dissenting commissioners who could really, really Mm -hmm. identify with the community, and and I had not seen that before. I'm not saying it doesn't happen or didn't happen, but, you know, I'm used to a complete rubber rubber stamp process. Um, After that, it goes to review by the Joint Review Board, and this is where Ben Jarowski came in handy. I didn't know anything about a Joint Review Board until Ben Jarowski wrote about it, but the Joint Review Board is a board comprised of all of those taxing bodies that would be impacted by Mm -hmm. the TIF. And one would think that if they're going to lose out on revenue for the next 23 years, that there would be some objection or some question or some demand for analysis as cost and benefit. You know, what am I getting Mm -hmm. in return for me giving you access to my revenue, but there was none of that, none, none, none. And there was a community rep for this TIF who was selected by the alderman, and she knew nothing about the process, and nobody else could mm-hmm. ask any questions. The only people who could ask questions would be the alderman and this person. And we, you know, at that point, we had a new alderman, and she was clueless about the process, and the person she picked was clueless about the process. And she would not allow them to ask us any questions. So that you know, that was a farce. Okay, and then mm-hmm. after that there was a public hearing for the community development commission. So that introduction that I was talking about is just going to the community development commission. Then there's a the public hearing after the joint review board. And then after that, it's introduced to the city council. And then it goes to the city council finance committee. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it gets approved by the city council. So we went to every one of these meetings. We were engaged at every level of the process for nine months. And, you know, we just
3: refused to go away.
0: So that was helpful. Um, Tip number three, know the laws, ordinances, policies, and plans that drive the TIF. So, you know, we studied the state code, and you can go to IllinoisILGA.gov. We went to the city's website to read everything we could about every TIF. We looked at all the redevelopment plan, ordinances, and we looked at the Housing Impact Study. So all that stuff is rich with information. You have to learn the language of the city so you can communicate and negotiate as as, uh, Dr. Foreman was alluding to. Um, And that helps you with number four, know what questions to ask. If you can ask pointed questions. And the good thing about our coalition you know, we have people that you at least likely expect to ask very pointed, um, informed, well-informed questions. Mm-hmm. So we would ask things like, you know, what are the goals and objectives of the TIP? Are these in conflict with the best interests of the community? How do we make sure developers are held accountable? You know, we one thing we push for, but have never gotten was a TIF advisory council. You know, to today we don't really have TIF advisory councils in North Lawndale. Ooh, what's that? Walter Burnett may have, I think he has a council of sorts in his ward. Okay, so um, you want to know how this TIF and other TIFs have performed in the past. Have TIFs lived up to their expectations? Um, How many people from the community actually have been hired? Do they still have the jobs? How do we improve the skill level of our workforce so that they can take advantage? Mm -hmm. You know, how many local and minority-owned businesses have received TIF assistance and contracts? You know, we were Mm -hmm. able to verify a lot of this stuff and what we also found and our advocacy, even after the Ogden Pulaski TIF, was that the city was saying that they created X number of jobs for every TIF in their documents, and then when we called upon them to produce a list by zip code, they couldn't produce it. So as a result of advocacy in that area, the city started calling their um, delegate agencies and asking them to track. The number of jobs and all the benefits, you know, so some good stuff did come out of this, but it wasn't without a fight yes. so again, tip number five: analyze the redevelopment plan from your own vantage point, you know whether you're a resident, whether you're a business owner, so if you're a resident, you know you want to know things like, will my taxes go up, will I be displaced, will my neighbors be displaced? Will my property be taken from me through eminent domain? And if you are a business owner, you you still cons- you're concerned about those taxes. But then you also want to know: Does the plan bring in other businesses that are competitive with mine or my members? You know what incentives are offered to me, a business owner? You know what are they going to do to help me build my capacity so I can compete? And right. Will my property or my business be taken over through eminent domain? So those are all very real questions to ask. And tip number six, you want to find allies who share common interests. And, you know, we had some strange bedfellows in our group, and there were people who were trying to drive away. You know, like I said, the the fact that we had a thin sliver of that property In South Londale, which is primarily Latino, um, and then you had the African community, people try to drive a wedge, try to um, portray us as racist for for just, you know, really delicately trying to explain that um, mismatch of land use with uh, the ability to implement Right, and the fact that most of the tax money was coming out of North Mondale. You know, how do we make sure Mm -hmm. that there's there's equity? But people tried to use that as a wedge, you know, and tried to Mm -hmm. discredit us. Um, But we didn't allow that. We found people who had common interests, even though they were considered very different people. We had in laws, outlaws, and everything in between. Um, And even people who were organized to come to the meeting to support um, the TIF, you you know, on behalf of the developers, they could see our point, you know. So there was nobody who argued with our point, not even the people who developed the TIF or came to support it. So, you want to find activists from other communities, politically connected or neutral people who have the ear of those you need to influence. Um, you want to talk to elected officials who are promoting issues and ordinances that are consistent with your position. So, you know, people like Alderman Scott Weisbach, he was um, really good to uh, support. Um, people like Mike Quigley, he was a uh, commissioner at the county level. He had written the tale of two cities. Um, right. Cook County Commissioner. Well, he wasn't the commissioner. Was, um, Cook County Clerk David Orr. And if I have his title wrong, correct me. You know, his office was was friendly. You know, they didn't know us personally, but you know, they shared a lot of information that was helpful to us in mm-hmm. showing that over time there could actually be more money in these TIFs than going to the general fund from these districts. Um, mm-hmm. So research is key, understanding policy, um, other um, policy and advocate groups, journalists and reporters, you know, Ben Jarofsky was critical for bloggers, You know, the people who supported us were, uh, nine times out of ten, they were Republican. And um, they very much were opposed to abuse of eminent domain. The odd thing is people who, you know, many Democrats would not stick their necks out to help us. Mm -hmm. Um, Community-based organizations and engaged residents. So, So, like I said, we had some strange... Mm -hmm. very conservative people helped us Um, Mm -hmm. know your rights and legal standing you know is the the TIF being carried out in a manner that's consistent with the local state and federal laws and if not then what are the areas I, I think what was critical for us is being able to identify those errors in the redevelopment plan and we kept going you know every time they corrected it, we would go back over it and keep finding mistakes. What was also critical to us is the the fact that they wanted to use, they wanted to build 300 units of housing, but land bank, 1,700. And and apparently there was some law that indicated Mm. um, that that was excessive. You need to have a plan for for the land that you plan to acquire. And since they didn't have a plan or weren't willing to reveal the plan. And I should say, too, that this was also around the time when we were vying for the Olympics. So there's all Mm -hmm. kinds of um, speculation as to whether or not, you know, people were trying to get us in alignment for Olympic venues to take place in Douglas Park. Of course, Mm -hmm. nobody will ever admit it, but, you know, once you start, Connecting the dots with this TIF mm-hmm. and then connecting the dots with the Olympic bid, then you know patterns start to emerge. But nobody was willing mm-hmm. to um, admit to this pattern. Nobody who worked for the city. Um, and then uh, you want to know if the TIF has actually discriminated against a group of people. Um, the mm-hmm. eighth tip I want to share. Is you know understand the ethics behind the plan. You know, are there
1: mm-hmm.
0: potential conflicts of interest? Uh, is there adequate separation between the roles of the planner, the real estate developer, the major landholder, real estate investor, and the advisory group? Is such a group exists? And you know, from time to time, you know, there are conflicts of interest, and if there are, you want to expose them. Uh, is there potential for divided loyalty? So in some cases, elected officials sit on board the directors of organizations that sponsor or support the TIF. How do they handle those competing interests, right, of the electorate and the community-based organizations? Uh, is there potential for the plan to displace one group of people in favor of another? Are advisory committees staffed through an open, nonpartisan political process? Are the interests of low income taxpayers who must ultimately pay for and reimburse all the costs? You know, are they representative or are they paying for their own displacement? What do they get out of the deal? Do mm-hmm. special interest groups have greater voice than local residents? And are there win-win strategies that will minimize conflicts and even Mm -hmm. the playing field? Tip number nine, know where your elected officials stand on the issue. So you want to meet with your alderman, meet with your county commissioner, meet with your state representative, meet with the state senator, the congressman, senators, you know, and if there's any... Uh, feedback that they can give you, um, take that into consideration. You want to host town hall meetings and other public meetings. Review the elected officials' voting records and read articles in local press. Sometimes they tell you one thing, but vote another. Yes. You know, so just stay vigilant. Um, tip number 10 keep your constituency informed of the latest development. Mm-hmm telephone, door to door canvassing, flyering, CAN T V, community newspaper ads, local and national newspapers, radio, websites, blogs, newsletters, direct mail, email, you know, we did all of this stuff. And you know, it could be very, very tiring. And be transparent, eleven. You know, we talk about the government and we demand that they be transparent. But we have to live up to what we're demanding of others. So our integrity is key as organizers. So you want to utilize the language of the city to the greatest extent possible when describing official proceedings, even if you have to simplify it for people who may not be familiar. You never want to distribute flyers that could be intentionally misleading just to generate a crowd and we had some people do that for us, and that was not fun, and the, yeah. had to go back and correct it, the truth is much more sufficient, right? it's, it's more than sufficient to generate interest. And if you send out materials with errors of fact, correct the mistake immediately through the very mm-hmm. same channels that you provided the incorrect information, even if it means, going through the embarrassment of retracting statements in local newspapers or resending thousands of emails and mailers. Been there, done that? Mm -hmm. That's not fun. Mm -hmm. And tip 12, you want to accept the consequences of your actions. You know, speaking truth to power has consequences. On the Mm -hmm. positive side, you know, you can affect change to the systems that result in win-win solutions heighten awareness of the issues, and you got a more engaged community. But on the negative side, you know, there are attempts to discredit you and your group and mm-hmm. your message. Um, leaders are often isolated and labeled as troublemakers. You get excluded from key meetings by so-called gatekeepers in the community. Mm-hmm. Um key stakeholders begin to distance themselves, and retaliation. I have experienced all of the above.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And finally, document your work. Had I not documented this work starting in 2007, I couldn't talk to you about it today in 2019. Mm-hmm. So note changes in systems, policies, increased learning, keep copies of meeting notices, sign-in sheets, meeting notes, And post as much documentation on websites and blogs as possible. Focus on your past success, and that helps encourage you when the chips are down. You want to communicate Mm -hmm. success, and that helps to maintain the momentum of this disparate group, right, this group of um, disparate interests. Document the progress, and that helps attract others to your process. You want to document your mistakes because that helps you from repeating. You want to share lessons learned with others, and that helps promote your agenda, and let's just pray that the activists have a positive agenda that is inclusive of the community. It increases the capacity of others, and it helps you to receive constructive feedback so you can tweak the agenda, make sure it's inclusive and responsive, and establish long term relationships, so those are those those are thirteen tips that I had, and I know attorney Freeman, we're going to be cut off in nine minutes. We'll be cut off by the system, and I probably want to get off in eight minutes so that our conversation is not cut off at the end. so did you have a question or comment?
2: Well, yes. I mean, this this is. I agree with uh, the other the other caller that that commented that this is very, very, very useful for uh, for uh, other organizations to be able to share and use across the city as this development is going on. So I really, uh, I I think I commend you for doing it. There's a couple of things that that I wonder though. Well, one of the the, um, the the things that obviously you came across was um as what you were talking about earlier about the finding that many of the things that were promised in the in the creation of jobs and the creation of uh, of the outcomes uh were not were not properly documented or did not occur. So mm-hmm. in retrospect would you would you say that in retrospect that you would want that the uh that that you would reach for some sort of provisions that not only require documentation all along, or they require penalties, or some other kinds of of uh, something that can put teeth in the in the outcomes that you wish to have seen.
0: Okay, so the the outcomes are determined by the developer and the sponsors. And there are people who monitor them, you know, um, at the state level. You know, every year the city has to provide a report of TIF activities. I forget the exact name of the report. So there is someone from the state looking at those reports. Um, When we had um, David Orr in office, he he used his bully pulpit to uh, shed light on issues, so I find that it's it's very difficult to put punitive measures in there unless people are breaking the law. It's very difficult to make people actually follow through with some of this stuff. Um, but the city also does have provisions for developers who don't fall you know follow through on their redevelopment agreements. They can always uh, recapture some of that money, Uh, but for for the community, I find that the best the best way to do things is to keep a light on it, let people be aware of it, and what they Mm -hmm. say, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think when Uh people know that, people are watching. They tend to do better. They they
2: do much better. So you're saying that. You you vote yourself into, you become a watchdog organization for the implementation and, and report. use the same kind of mechanism you use with uh, media to report out to the community on a regular basis.
0: Right, right. And then, you know, if your elected officials find that everywhere they go, rank and file people are asking, well, what about this? What about that? You, you know, that, that puts pressure on them, you know. Mm-hmm. People don't do what's mm-hmm. expected; they do what's inspected.
2: mhm mm-hmm. well in terms, the second question mm-hmm. that I would have is just in terms of lessons learned you and you talked about the arduousness, obviously anytime you're talking about um co- coalition building and and people staying together and coming together that have disparate interests and so forth and and especially where. There are their interests that really may have at their interest to to uh, separate and to divide. What is your um, your advice concerning the, uh, the the kinds of allies to to absolutely try to bind to you or keep in your corner or absolutely put uh, as a core group? And how would you how would you go about? advising uh, uh, organizations uh, that are in this kind of coalition to do that.
0: Okay. I have one minute to answer that question, and then I'm going to have to go, and then I could probably answer any questions you and Leslie may have offline, if that makes sense.
2: All right.
0: Okay. So so the, the question is, how do you keep them together? Oh, what types of people should you have? The I think for us, the the people who were the most powerful as it relates to TIF were the homeowners, property owners, you know, because they had mm. a financial uh, interest in the TIF. And what was effective for us is we said that, uh, you know, they tried to pretend that the homeowners really weren't that important, but once we mm. calculated how much property tax they would be paying, you know, $250 million versus the $100 million uh-huh. budget, then that puts things in a different light. Then you see that people mm-hmm. have power. So for us, uh, just because people were poor, they, they were not powerless. They could demonstrate that mm-hmm. they had $250 million mm-hmm. invested in this. So go to the people who own the property first. You need to have people who are experts in – so they can tell you when you're wrong and they can impart information. I found mm-hmm. that policy and advocacy groups were helpful. I found that university personnel were very, mm-hmm. very helpful. Um, people who understand economic development were very helpful. Yeah. People who had been through this, you know, like a John Paul Jones, you know, right. were very, very helpful. And on that note, you know, we got three minutes. I want to make sure we get all of this onto tape and not get cut off. So I'm going to have to cut off here. Right if ahead. you have any questions, give me a call. But um, I want to let our listeners know, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sticking with us a half hour um, late. We've come to the end of our show and I can't thank you enough. Um, I encourage you to go to iTunes and leave a review if you like what you heard, um, then please uh, consider joining us. Go to nonprofitutopia.mn.co, and we've also included instructions to comment in the comment section to guide you through the process of leaving a review on iTunes. So make sure you tune in next week for another information pack episode of Nonprofit Utopia.